welcome to episode 12, isn't it, of the Head Stuff Podcast. We literally just talked about it. <laughs> we, we literally just talked about it. But it is episode 12 with Mary Morrissey, um, which is very exciting. Uh, we leave that in. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and I'm here with um, uh, Ferdia Lennon. How are you doing? Good, good. <laughs> Ferdy is um, uh, an old writer friend of mine. We'll, we'll get back to that. I'm also here with Connor Wilkins, who's doing the sound, and he has Hi. a microphone. Hi. Um, Connor asks some uh, good questions of Mary in the interview, which we've already done. Um, Ferdy uh, is a writer. Uh, you just uh, you finished, what, last year in University of East Anglia? Yeah, I finished up last year. Which is the, uh, the hotspot for writers to, to go to. I think yeah. Paul Murray went there, didn't he? Our, our, our last writer guest. Yeah, I think I think, I think he so. did, yeah. So you did an MA in... Yeah, did an MA in prose fiction. Oh, prose fiction. Yeah, because okay. they have a few strands, one for poetry and then oh, okay. one for script and one for prose. And why did you pick prose fiction? Oh, well, I, I don't write any poetry, so... Oh, so is, is it just poetry and prose fiction, or is yeah, it... Yeah, so if you do the prose fiction MA, you don't actually do... I know so there are other MAs you can like do workshops in poetry, oh, okay. whereas for this MA it's specifically just oh. novels or short oh, cool. stories. Yeah, my one I did some poetry in it. Which doesn't ever need to see the light of day. <laughs> yeah. But it was interesting, I think, to do it. It is. Get you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, for me, I kind of knew that I wanted to focus on the prose, so that was the you know, good yeah, option. Yeah. And who were your uh, tutors? Um, I had a few different tutors. I had Andrew Cowan. Okay. Um, I had Giles Foden. Right. Um, he did The Last King of Scotland. Oh, right. And we also had... Um, I also Rebecca Scott, who writes historical fiction. And then we had Margaret Atwood as well <laughs> in the second semester. <laughs> you kept that one for the last one. Yeah, dum-dum-dum-dum, <laughs> Margaret Atwood. What was that like? That was very cool. It really was. You were. She's like she's one of the foremost writers of the entire generation. Yeah, like she's, uh, yeah. as big as it gets. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was one of those experiences just... You're kind of going, okay, this is... Yeah, <laughs> whatever you say, that's correct. Yeah, completely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was she nice? Was she was she a good teacher? She was. She was quite... Um, her demeanour was kind of like tough right. and serious, so you kind of walk in and you're nervous. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then actually... Was she strict? A little bit. There was, you know, detentions and things like that. <laughs> no, no. She was. She was serious. She, what she was good was that she was serious and she wasn't afraid to... She'd be honest... And sometimes that was positive, sometimes it was negative, but it was mm. always like, you know, good, insightful feedback. Yeah, honest is what you want anyway. Yeah, exactly. Have you read many of her books? or? Um, yeah, I read one of her books, um, Cat's Eye, which was really oh, good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've read some short stories as well. Yeah, I read The Blind Assassin, which I think, does that, that won the Booker Prize maybe? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. She's good. She's Absolutely. the lady knows how to write. And what have you been working on and since have you been writing or Yeah, I kind of I moved I moved to London this year and just kind of sorting stuff out meant I had a little bit less time. But yeah, I've been working on a book it was historical fiction. Oh, actually. Really? Yeah, historical fiction. Where, when's it set? It is set in um the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh <laughs> set in ancient Greece. Is it actually? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, not bullshitting. Uh, oh, right. So, I've, you know, me and you both kind of love the classics. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I, I prefer ancient Rome because you know they dominated the Greeks, really. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> they handed it to the Greeks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I like both. Um, right. So, what what era of ancient Greece? What year? Like, what kind of? This would be classical Athens, right. Periclean Athens. So, you okay. know, Socrates and all oh, those guys. All the lads, Peloponnesian around on fountains, having chats. But yeah. Life. 
Yeah, that's it. Trying to figure it all out. <laughs> Eating olives and stuff. And, and do you have these kind of characters in the book, or is it is it based a bit more lowly than? It's like, mostly kind of like no names. Right. No. no more low names. level guys running than, around. Yeah. Greece talking about financial crisis. <laughs> that could be a good way. <laughs> yeah. How um, cool! And how's how's it actually going? Is it? Um, I would kind of more kind of now doing the research. Um, cause started off as a short story, which you can kind of I think whip out with a little. I studied classics. Yeah. Um, that was my degree. But uh, I think when you're doing a novel, you kind of have to build a world. So, you know, you do need to know a little bit more and yeah. take a bit of time and delve into it. Yeah. Have you read any more um, other, I suppose, books that are set in ancient Greece and Rome? I gave you a couple of books, didn't I, by uh, Robert Harris, The Imperium and Lustrum. Yeah, they're very good. Do you like them? Yeah, uh, I think he's uh, like cracking reads, just, you know, yeah. Yeah, good page. quality page turners. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's not much. A lot of it kind of tends to be kind of trashy. Yeah. You know, sword and sandals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some. There's one by Unsworth, Barry Unsworth, which right. isn't quite historical because mm. it's um, set in during the Trojan War. Okay. Um, about Achilles and uh, all these guys just before they set sail, and that's brilliant. So that's like that's Homer stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that's Homer. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a retelling. Right. Cool. But very good. There's a there's a Julius Caesar movie being made uh, based on the book uh, which there's another series of historical books based around Caesar yeah. and they're making it into a movie that sounds good good stuff I'm really excited about it absolutely so I'm a, much I'm obsessed with Julius Caesar oh, okay. you're obsessed with it <laughs> yeah. have you ever read any of his um, his bo- he has these uh, books on his campaigns in the Gaul yeah yeah I've read that yeah, yeah. have you read them yeah, yeah yeah the Gallic War and Civil yeah, War yeah yeah he I've writes o- them in the third person it's amazing cheeky it's like Caesar did this Caesar did that oh, okay. <laughs> it's so, so everybody cool. said oh, he we did. yeah he wrote oh, cool. it himself it's like Caesar is great that's odd <laughs> how could Julius do it again but <laughs> yeah. yet he managed <laughs> yeah. that handsome yeah. yeah but if he and it, you know by all accounts he was just unbelievable yeah. What's the one where there was like the war, the two armies closing in? The Battle of Alicia. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I don't know, we managed to kind of con- convince the, if the two kind of groups that were closing in had have known yeah. how, you know. Well, he was he was sieging, I think, Alicia or whatever. Yeah. And then he was, he was basically trying to starve them out. Yeah. But then he didn't realise that they had contacted someone behind them and they were coming from the this other side. This massive arm, that's it, yeah. yeah. So Caesar had like built his, his siege works all around Delicia, you know, the ditches and the spikes yeah, yeah. and everything. And then there was an incoming army from the other side, so they were trapped. So he's like, okay, let's build another siege thing all the way around that, a bigger one, massive. Yeah, so yeah. he's like trapped in this big ring donut, starving out the guys on the inside. And While he's being yeah. starved out. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, it's man. It's so amazing, that, yeah. Like that's Game of Thrones stuff, you yeah, know, it'd yeah. be like better than... Yeah, than anything. But it's real. But it's real. <laughs> well, yeah. Game of Thrones isn't real. Um, I, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. No, man, that's that's fantasy. That is. No, it's a hundred percent fact. <laughs> sure. Sorry, I haven't. <laughs> I won't talk again. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> I haven't seen uh, Game of Thrones. I was joking, but I, sure. I understand sure. people like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not fact. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean. <laughs> but it's. Have you, have you read Game of Thrones? I haven't read Game of Thrones. Um, They're too big, I think. I don't want to read them. Yeah, you kind of feel like it's easier just to... To not read them. <laughs> to not read them, yeah. I'm sure, like, I watched this TV series and it's, you know... Yeah. Got really good storytelling, so I'm sure yeah, the books yeah. are... Did you read Lord of the Rings? Yeah. See, I don't like... I didn't like it. I read the first part of the first book and it's too big. I think fantasy books are always too big. Yeah, I was... Do you remember Tom Bombadil? He's the one. He's a character in the the Fellowship of the Ring, 
and there's a certain period where it's just they kind of have to shack up. They've been attacked by these kind of creatures. And it's this guy, Tom Bombadil, for about 100 pages, <laughs> just sitting on, like, dancing on a table in yellow boots. And it's just like, oh. So, yeah, so I didn't get out of the shadow because he's, like, you know, describing the grass for, like, 40 pages and then something else happens and then he's describing shoes. And I was like, I'm bored of this and I'm not reading it. You should get the picture book version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Peter Jackson way should on movies version. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Tickle or something. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Tickle is a classic. I stand by Mr. Tickle. <laughs> Waiting for a Mr. Tickle movie. <laughs> it's the best of all the Mr. Men books. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's how I feel about fantasy books. Uh, and you feel you feel okay about them? Or? I funnily, Other than your man Bonneville. Or I have this book called... Uh, it's David Gemmel. I lost my bag when I was coming over to Dublin... And uh, a friend of my brother was, oh, you should take these. And they're books that I would never, like, Blood of the Sword. <laughs> Blood of the Sword and The Last King. But the thing is, they're actually, you know... Well, this one, this book is fun, you know? Yeah, they're entertaining. Yeah, they're entertaining. And that's what they're supposed to be, so... Yeah, completely. Yeah. Uh, what else have you been reading lately? Um, I've been reading a bit of graphic novels. I'm reading V for Vendetta now. Oh, I just read Alan Watchmen Moore. recently. Oh, it's so good, isn't the it? The only one I've read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you read any of these things? These, these no. so-called these uh, no. newfangled graphic novels. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I read Watchmen. Um, I, yeah, I thought it was really good. I thought yeah. it was a really good story, but at the end of the day, I was distracted with pictures. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was. I prefer just a book with no pictures because I'm like you're reading it, and you know when you're reading, and when there's like really kind of dramatic scene, you're yeah. going along with the pace, and you're reading faster, and you're like you're reading into it. But then when there's pictures as well, some of them the bits you have to pick up are words, yeah. and some of the action is happening in the pictures, so you have to read the words and then almost change your focus and look at the picture. I know what you mean. And so for Definitely. me, that took away from it not being just a book, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like it, you know. Yeah. No, I, well, I don't like it enough. I think his storytelling is is so good yeah, definitely. that I'll bear, you know, that it, I just really enjoyed it and thought it was excellent. But I wouldn't be, you know, majorly interested in, like, reading, I don't know, you know, Batman Chronicle 4 or yeah, whatever. No. I just, I was, you know. Yeah. yeah. I was happy to give Watchmen a, a try because it's, you know, the best one, apparently, that yeah. everyone says. Um, obviously written by the same person as V for Vendetta. Um but I think because it was it was included in the like New York Times hundred best novels or something like that. You should read Mouse as well. That's, oh yeah, that one I actually would read. That's yeah, cracking too. That looks great. That's yeah. obviously set in, in, in the, yeah, the Holocaust or whatever. Yeah, the concentration uh, camps. The the mice are, are the Jews, is it? Yeah. The mice are the, the mice are the Jews and then the Germans are some other animal. They're cats. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, that looks great. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely I'd check that out. Okay. Noted. So you're just back for uh, you're just back for a few days. You're living in London. You're in Dublin for a few days. Yeah. How's that going? How's your mother? Is she all right? Yeah, she's very good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen anyone else while you've been here? Have you any any other young Irish writers? Quite a good scene here. Yeah, I was out with um, yeah, I was out with a few friends. I had a friend Shane, who's playwright. Oh yeah, yeah, Shane. What's he up to? Yeah, he's just working on a play as a kind of commission with um, it's Rough Magic. Oh cool. So he's just finishing up there. Cool. Um, a friend of mine works over Rough Magic sometimes. She's yeah. a set designer. Oh, really? Yeah. So maybe she'll work on his. That'd yeah. be cool. And yourself, you obviously, since I left, uh, moved away, you've started up Headstuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Headstuff. Headstuff.org. Check it out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm still pestering you to get you involved. Someday that'll happen. You'll yeah, man. I, I will. I absolutely will write something for you. Yeah. Edit, you know, <coughs> 
you guys you're doing now like a literary section right just a literary section yeah, yeah that's run by Noel Regan who's a great writer yeah, he's, he's won all the awards for young writers in oh, Ireland. Really? Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, really? yeah. Most recently he won the Sean Dunn Award. Yeah. Yeah, which is nice. Um, but yeah, he's great. He's gonna he's gonna nice. be um he's gonna be one of the people that you look up to later on in life and you're like when we were young we were there together. We knew <laughs> Sean <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But, we um, know. Noel's uh, yeah, he's doing a great job in the section, so uh, anyway, so this this episode is with Mary Morrissey, yeah. uh, who's a brilliant Irish writer, um, and uh, her book, The Rising of Casey, is the most recent book, which is another one coming out in, I think she said in January? January, yeah. Yeah, linked short story collection, yeah. set on this one street, which... Uh, yeah, I really look forward to reading that. Yeah, me too. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, what do we talk about with Mary? We talk about <laughs> her time in the, in the Irish Times, uh, her books, uh, historical fiction, Hilary yeah. Mantle. Uh, I think it's a good interview. Yeah, I think it's very good. We get into, yeah, everything from how she started to why she kind of, most of her novels are historical fiction, yeah. the kind of struggles. Yeah, her big long publishing gap. Yeah. yeah. Which was very interesting to hear about. Um, Teaching, like, um, creative writing workshops yeah, and masters. Because yeah. you did the masters with her Yeah, as well. she was one of my teachers. Yeah, so yeah. so um, I suppose we should get into the interview without yeah. further ado. Uh, so this is uh, episode 12 with Mary Morrissey. This episode of the Headstuff podcast has a sponsor. Ooh, nice. Yeah, they're called Backtrack Breathalyzer. Tell me about them, Alan. <laughs> I will. They are um, a breathalyzer that uh, can help you not get busted for a DUI or drink driving if you're in Ireland. Um, so what you do is you, you get a Backtrack Breathalyzer and you test your alcohol level. So if you're out drinking your Guinness or your gin and tonic, you can then, I assume, blow into this thing and it tells you your blood alcohol content... BAC from Backtrack, um, and oh, it can tell you, clever. yeah, and it can tell you if it's a point zero two or a point one two. Uh, so find out with a Backtrack. Stay safe and test yourself, friends and family. Uh, go to backtrack.com and enter coupon code Lucky for twenty percent off. Hello and welcome to the Headcuff Podcast, Mary Morrissey. How is how's things? Yeah, things are good, thanks. Yeah, I'm here with Ferdia Lennon as well, uh, a fellow writer. Um, so uh, we, we just, I just met you on the stairs and we were talking about you were here before. Do, can we can we start there? Yes. It was interesting. You know, we were all here before. Um, <laughs> um, yes, many, many moons ago, um, I was a kind of a, a groupie, I suppose you could say. And uh, I better give some context. We're in the Westland Studios building. Yes. And... <laughs> I was uh, married subsequently after being a groupie to a traditional musician and You married the person you were groupie I, to? Yes, exactly. Oh, yes. that's the dream. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. Um, unfortunately, it didn't last. But anyway, mm. you know, it lasted for a while and uh, he was recording in the Lombard studios okay. with his band. And so, What was um, the band called? The band was called Stockton's Wing. Okay. And... Um, they used to record very, you know, overnight, you know, and the girlfriends, which I was at the time, you know, were deputed to bring in food mostly, <laughs> you know, and and drink sometimes and listen to all the tracks. It was absolutely fascinating, actually, you know, sort of sitting in the graveyard hours listening to the, well, listening to the same track over and over again and hearing how they made a difference. Yeah. And um, I must say I was I was fascinated by it, you know. Right. And, uh, you know, I had this dream 
of being a backing singer. All right. Unfortunately, they didn't do much singing. You know, they did more instrumental stuff. But I thought if I sat around long enough, maybe somebody would yeah. ask me to go, you know, do pop or something in the background. And do you sing? But um, I do in a sort of a... Yes, I do a bit, you okay. know. Okay, Yeah. Yeah. Not it's, that it's, I think that that's a prerequisite to being a back, backing singer, you know. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's all you have to do. If you, <laughs> yeah. sing, if you sing in the shower, that's, that's, <laughs> that's plenty. <laughs> Yeah, it's downstairs is really fascinating. I've I've had uh, a few tours of the place. They like to bring people in and show them around because it's it's amazing studio. It's really it's it's old and old fashioned as was. But yes, um, the people who recorded down there, like Bob Dylan, recorded down there and Kate Bush. Oh, yeah, I did not know that. Um, really? Uh, yeah, on the same level, the Cores um, recorded albums down there, and that room across there is full of their stuff. Yeah. Um, Miley Cyrus was here a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. Now the that's fame. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really kind of fascinating. Um, and so, were you writing around then? Were you creative at the time? Um, I was writing, but in a very sort of secretive way. Right. Nobody would have known that. You weren't showing people. Sorry, no, certainly what wasn't showing people. In? I I would have been early twenties, twenty one, twenty two. Yeah. Um. I had been in Australia for a year and really when I was there I decided I trained as a journalist so I was working as a journalist and um, I decided to come back to Ireland. I just had a visa, it just lasted a year and while I was there I had been dabbling in writing and I decided that okay if I was going to do this I'd better kind of actually apply myself (laughs) to it as opposed to dabbling. Even though you know while I was dabbling I had had a bit of success at Listow Writers Week and a few, you know, publications. Um, then when I started to take it seriously, of course, I didn't get published for about 15 years, you know. <laughs> and I thought maybe it would have been better just Stick to, be, to dabbling. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so at that stage, no. Right. Um, I mean, the creative people at that stage were the boys in the band, right, you know. Yeah, there yeah. wasn't enough room for anybody yeah. else to be creative. <laughs> That is how it is, isn't it, though, at the start? Nobody shows their writing to anybody else for a while. Well, I mean, it's so delicate and you're yeah. so unsure yourself. Yeah. And, I mean, that uncertainty, I think, just goes on and on. That yeah. never goes away. But um, you just, you're so full of kind of shame and sort of self-loathing <laughs> about it that the idea that you would show it to anyone else yeah. or even admit that you were doing it because even that's a risk because once you say you're writing people are then thinking yeah well when will i see your book yeah. you know there's no in between i think for most people that a declaration of being a writer means that you must have product yeah. somewhere yeah. And, you know, I think the whole process of writing is really about learning how to say, I am a writer. Yeah. And how did you do that? How did you get over that shame? Well, you know, kind of paradoxically, um, I had a big gap in publication, about 15 years, which is a very long gap. Um, And it was during that, which is just only just this dry spell has only finished recently. It was... During that period, I actually came to call myself a writer and not oh. not be sort of qualifying it all the time. When I was working as a journalist, I used to say, well, I'm, this is how I define myself. I'm a journalist. And then, like, I do a bit of writing, you mm. know, so as not to give it any too much weight or emphasis, you know, and cut down and all the expectations. 
then I was published, but then I wouldn't call myself a writer. If I were going through a bad period where I wasn't writing, mm. I'd say to myself, you don't deserve to call yourself a writing, writer because you're not writing. So, you know, so it was like, you know, Monday I'd be a writer and the rest of the week I wouldn't be. And mm. just as I say, then I was writing and not being published at all. Right. And... Somehow I thought, well, actually, now I'm really suffering for it. So now I think I can deserve to call myself a writer. You know, I'm a writer that nobody reads. I'm a writer that nobody publishes. So it was, as I say, paradoxically, when I wasn't being published, that I learned to say, OK, this is what I do. I do it regardless of being published or not, yeah. or regardless of people's expectations. You know, lots of people would say oh, you know, are you not writing anymore? Yeah. And I would say, no, I am writing. I'm just not being published. You're not <laughs> seeing me, but I'm writing. Yeah. I'm still doing it. Yeah. That's the same for me, me and Ferdy at the moment, I think, is it? Or, yeah, just working away. But, yeah. And it is a true thing. It's almost, yeah, you wait till uh, you feel like as a writer, it's a separate thing from being a writer as somebody who writes. Mm. But that embarrassment until you necessarily have a book cover that you can show people. Mm. Um. Mm. And when you were in that gap, were you working more on short stories or novels? I was working on a very kind of treacherous novel. Um, I had one novel which I'd finished and was not taken, was rejected. And um, that kind of threw me down. And it took me a while to kind of get going on a new novel. And then I started doing that. And that got sort of roundly rejected. And I spent a at least four or five years reworking it and reworking it. When you said the the first one was rejected, how many places did you send it before you decided it was rejected fully? um, Well, I sent it to uh, Jonathan Cape, who were my publishers, and they said no. Oh, because you already had a publisher at that point? Yeah. Okay. And um, then my agent sent it round to various other places. I just did the rounds and nobody wanted it. And at a certain stage, you know, the agent says, okay you know, time to move on. It's like, you know, it's a bit like having a bad relationship and your best friend says, it's time to move (laughs) on, you know. Uh, So you put the despised book away and you start on something new. And the new thing was uh, The Rising of Bella Casey, which was also rejected by Cape. Sorry, am I lost now in your timeline? Is this, you wrote this before the other two books, the other two novels? No, I wrote this after. Okay. All right. So there was book one and two, then there was the despised, rejected book number oh, three, which okay. wasn't published. Then, so The Rising of Bella Casey is actually my fourth novel. Oh, so there's, a, there's an unpublished Mary Morrissey out there there's somewhere. There's an unpublished Mary Morrissey. For somebody Morrissey. to find someday. Yeah. Well, you know, it is there, you know. Um, but I have actually done a bit of cannibalising of it, you know, for, for stories yeah, and for yeah. other things and recasting bits and pieces of it. So it's kind of, it might be a little collector's item at some stage, <laughs> but a great deal. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a whole load of ideas. So, right. you know, I think, oh, look, here, <laughs> this can be used, you know. Oh, that's the same with everyone so, as well. Though, yes, I think. I've plundered yeah. it, yeah, you yeah. know. So, um, so it was the rising of Bella Casey that I just I spent four or five years on. And right. It kept on being rejected. And so, what year was the Pretender published? Uh, the Pretender was published in two thousand. Oh, okay. So. And this was what two thousand four. When the year was this? Thirteen. So there yeah. was about thirteen years oh, there. I didn't realize that. Mm. So this was written. I kept it a big secret, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I read the Pretender probably in two thousand like eleven or twelve. 
and at that point I didn't realize I was 10 or 12 years old <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but it's yeah so uh, the, the middle novel the, one, the unpublished one as well yeah. is that also a historical novel um, well, it's, I suppose it's historical in that it's kind of set in the 70s, okay, that's which historical. I think now is historical. Yeah. You know, it doesn't <laughs> seem counts. historical to me, but you know, it is historical. Yeah. I didn't exist, it counts. <laughs> 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 yeah. So what do, you, what do you think of the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, turn back a bit, about the, the Harper Lee thing. So that was an unpublished novel that obviously turned up, I don't yes. know how many years later. Yeah. Um, do you do you have any insight into that? Well, not insight, but do you feel like she was not tricked, but be, because she's lost? I don't know what happened there. Um, but it, obviously, that novel wasn't published for so long, and then what happened? Her sister died, and then all of a sudden, it was published, and her sister was looking after her or something. My understanding is that the sister was kind of like a literary executor because I don't think that she's compass mentis or able yeah. to make these decisions herself right. and then the sister died and there obviously must have been some arrangement with an agent to look after her work in the mm. event of the sister dying and I think you know this third person yeah. entered the relationship and decided that mm, it should be published well, yeah. yeah did you read it um, I haven't read it. No, no. Never I, I sort of feel I, I feel like resisting reading yeah. it because yeah, the, the whole situation it. Yeah. of it is a bit, bit grubby, a bit squalid. You know. Yeah. I read the first page in a bookshop. I mean, it could be good, but it's that the Killer Mockingbird, <clears throat> that voice of Scout is just yes. so, uh, you know, enthralling. You're like, you pick it up, you have to read on. And yeah. then this was Scout as older, is it? It's older and it's yeah. in third person, um, and it, it seemed a little bit drier. But, you know, you can't judge a book. You do judge a book on the first page, but it could be very good if it goes on. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that the the story is that this is the novel that she wrote first. Yeah. And presented it, and they said, oh, no, you know, like, do this, do, you know, this, the the voice of Scout is the interesting thing here, why not concentrate on that? So, in fact, this is a book that was rejected. Yeah. This was Um, her intended first. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, what grew out of that was yeah. Kill you could almost call and it then to Kill a Mockingbird like the second draft of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. then it shouldn't be published, yeah. And in, I think, that, you know, way. like the author's... <clears throat> I sort of think the author's intentions are really important, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for as long as she was able to make decisions for herself, she said, I do not want this to be published. Yeah. And, you know, that it had gone the rounds of um, publishers who said, no, you know, this isn't, this isn't a book that should be published. Mm. So, but I mean, I think the author's intentions are really important to be honoured there. Yeah. And I think they haven't been, and I think somebody thought, oh, wouldn't this be a great marketing wheeze, you know, yeah. the, the, a second novel by Harper Lee, who yeah. was so adamant, which... I mean, I've always admired it to be able to say, okay, that's it. You know, that's yeah. my book. Yeah. I've said what I wanted to say, and there it is. Yeah. You know. It's a tricky one. I mean, you know, like with Kafka, most of his books, he wanted to be destroyed. He didn't want them to be published. Mm-hmm. And then his friend, his executor, was just like, 
nah, we're going to publish this. Mm. And mm. we're lucky mm. for that. Yeah. But then again, you know. Well, I mean, there is that argument too that, you know, um, and in your dark moments you think, well, even maybe after I'm dead someone <laughs> will find these and think, my God, <laughs> masterpieces, you know, yeah. let's publish them. So, I mean, you, you know, there's a bit of kind of selfish interest in it too. Yeah. You think, well, um, but that seems to me, the Harper Lee um, example seems to me very much somebody yeah. moving in in a commercial yeah. way yeah. and thinking, oh, this would be good, wouldn't it? Well, of course it, it would, know? yeah. And it would, turned yeah. out to be massive, didn't it? Yes, yeah. And there's so much spin going on. Then there's like people are interviewing her and saying that she's totally there, she doesn't have dementia or anything, and she's delighted that it's published and you don't mm. really know who to listen to. Yes, yes. Um, but it's the same with, isn't it, J.D. Salinger, like he did not see write anything. Well, he was apparently always writing and putting everything into drawers and things. Yes. And now it's like there could be, you know, like 10 novels or something. Colour-coded like, in a safe, apparently. There's yeah. ones that he had... Blue for being published five years after his death, <laughs> red for not published, and you know. Oh, so he had a plan for yeah. it. <laughs> but knowing they're there, you know, I want them to be published anyway because yes. I want to read them. Yes. Obviously, you know. Yeah. Um, Is it, would, would you find it hard to get over the, you know, the, the works that you created and then they weren't, say, accepted? And is it hard to actually get over that? Or looking back, would you kind of almost agree at all with? you know the publisher's comments or anything like that or would you think now God, you know I actually wish that I'd come out when it did or do you think that you would have benefited it in the sense that you wrote the new novel uh, afterwards well I don't, it's a very hard question to, I know, yeah, to yeah, answer yeah. but um, you know were they were they right to reject me <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, uh, well, well I mean yeah. you know like that's the question I suppose and um, you see, it's very hard, I think, afterwards to disentangle your own feelings about a book and and somebody else's feelings about and it. An objective kind of criticism, obviously. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I mean, a book can be rejected for all sorts of mm. reasons. I mean, you're going to take it personally, of course. You know, there's no other way to take it, you know. But... Um, I will say about that third novel, the, you know, the lost novel, um, that it, it wasn't the best thing I'd ever written. There were very good bits in it, yeah. but I think yeah. overall, you know, I wasn't as convinced of it as I was of the others. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, maybe somebody picked that up, yeah. you know. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it was unpublishable. Um, and, you know... You're given all sorts of reasons why a book isn't, um, you know, isn't going to be published. And in a way, it actually doesn't matter what those reasons are yeah. if the answer is no. Hmm. Um, because, you know, publishers have all sorts of formulas hmm. for rejecting hmm. people. You know, yeah. what, what m most of the time they said about that book, it's too quiet, you know, which... I'm thinking, well, what does that mean, yeah. really? Well, I think it means it's not sexy enough and we don't actually know how to sell it. Right. And I think that's the basis for a lot of rejection. Yeah. So like a record company saying there's no singles yeah. on this album. Well, for exactly. Band. And I mean, the commercial <laughs> side of publishing now is, you know, much more to the fore. So that it's not just a matter of, you know, the literary editors or the commissioning editors looking at a work and saying, yes, this is great, we're going to publish it. Um, 
you know, when I started writing in the 70s, you know, that was the way it was. The literary side of the house mm. decided. And then the boys in the suits said, OK. Figured it you out. Know? Yeah. Whereas now the boys in the suits actually decide on the basis of can it be sold? How can it be marketed? And, I mean, often they'll come back to the author and say, how do you expect us to market this? Mm. Yeah. You think, well, you know, I wrote it. Yeah. You know, that's my that's job. Your job. That's your you know, job you, yeah. you decide how to market it. It's a tricky... I remember I had a friend who was doing a workshop with a novel and uh, he was actually then advised, you know, have you thought about adding a serial killer in? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, um, no, because I don't really... It's, it's not about that. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, I really... Uh, Lecturer was really advising a serial killer, but it's that kind of you know. Yes, I got, yeah. some, I got some sort of advice like that as well. I, I, I can't remember what it was exactly. It was like it was like kill someone off or something. It's like it's not that kind of book. Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> what like, was that quote? You know, if you're ever uh, a more Leonard, if there's ever like a flag or maybe Raymond Chandler, have someone walk in with a gun. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's obviously not appropriate to uh, you know. Many, many great novels. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, when Chekhov says there's a gun, it has to go off yeah. at some stage. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, maybe you're just making more problems for yourself, you know. So, so that third, that third lost, the lost oh. Mary Morrissey, we call yeah. it. Um, do, do you think maybe there's like a kind of, I suppose, a brand to a writer? So, like, you already had two good novels out, so you're already, your, your name is synonymous with, you know, a standard, I suppose, of novel. So that the third one maybe wasn't as, I don't know, catchy, let's say, as the first two. Mm. But you think maybe if you had written that one first, that that would have been, they would have accepted that as a debut and then you would have moved on to the next ones, or...? Gosh, I've no idea, really. Mm. Um, I mean, I think sometimes a publisher gets an idea of you, mm. you know, and, you know, when you when you look at a couple of books that you've written, I mean, there is a common thread. Every time you start, you think, oh, this is a completely new book, it's completely different. But, you know, there are, you know, over a span of time, there are certain, you know, there are certain things that recur. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, even though I didn't consciously decide to go into historical fiction, I mean, that's my brand now. Mm. And I suppose... Um, the the lost novel um, was stepping outside that in mm. a way. I mean, yeah. I know you think it's historical, but you <laughs> well, know that. A, it, no, but yeah. it, it, it's a different kind of historical, of course, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, maybe that was maybe that was part of it. Okay. You know. Do you ever think about self-publishing or doing it under a different name or something? I, want I to did read the book. think of. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you will read. It. You will read it. It'll just sort of distribute yeah, it yeah, elsewhere. Yes, exactly. Um, I'll, I'll go through, you know, my next couple of works with you, Alan, and yeah. I'll say, okay, here's this is the last one. <laughs> oh, you know, I'll make a piece back together again. From <laughs> you're interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now I've forgotten what the question was. Uh, well, I suppose uh, to get your opinion on the the, the current trend of self-publishing overall. Oh, self-publishing. Yes, yes, I did think of self-publishing. Okay. Um, except that I thought, um, I thought that there would be a huge amount of work in the pushing it, the side yeah, of it. That's the thing. And isn't it? and I didn't feel actually competent enough right. to do that. Um, and then I thought, well, uh, if you do that and you don't have the kind of the marketing nows and the way of using social media to promote it, mm. then 
it's kind of lost again. Mm. And I decided I'd hold out and go the traditional publishing yeah. route. Um, even if it didn't work with that, you know, then I started the next one. Yeah. Um, so, but that's the only reason that I didn't do it, you yeah. know. Well, there's so many things being self-published now that you're, it's going to get lost in the noise. Yes. You know, yeah. you yeah. can't tell what's good and what's bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, if, if you're putting a book out, it's like you've already got two novels, so people know. Um, but still, if you're just putting, say, an ebook up on Amazon or something, there's literally thousands every day of mm. new ones, you know. Mm. So, yeah, it's 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 strange because some people self-published their first novel and then were kind of found that way, I suppose. Mm. I think kind of mm. Roddy Doyle, I think. Mm. Yes, exactly. Self-published the commitments. Yes, yeah. Which is interesting, but I think it was a different time. Yeah. Then the amount and of at a time when people didn't do it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, it, it always amazed me that that publishing was so um, was so late to pick up on the idea of yeah. self yeah. publishing. Yeah. You know, you look at the music industry, yeah. and they've been doing it forever. Practically yeah. setting up your own record label. Yeah. And just you know, record in your garage. You know yeah. that sort of thing, and there wasn't the same kind of shame attached to it you know maybe putting your stuff up on the web whereas self-publishing has always had this you know the the vanity idea that you know you're just doing it you know so that your friends can read your book and you know that it isn't you know that there's something there's something second rate about Mm. self-publishing yeah it could come back to what you spoke about earlier the whole the shame about even telling people that you're a writer and then that gets added when you're at a stage where you're like trying to publish your own book, mm. especially if you've never had that book out there. Yes. I remember Roddy Doyle talked about he actually got I got like a loan out. His folks gave it like a loan to self-publish, but the mm. main very very brave thing to do when handing that out in the street for mm. me, I was just like I could never do that. Mm. But uh, yeah. And it really, you see, it turns you into a marketeer. That's what you become. Yeah. And. Um, you think, God, it's hard enough to get time to yeah. write without having to, you know, yeah. devote a whole load of your time doing something that, you know, I think for a great many writers, it's like the, the worst thing possible. Yeah. You know, even, you know, promoting somebody else, but promoting yourself is a very It's always harder, isn't it? self-conscious could, thing, you know. Yeah, you could say something about a book that you really like, you should really read mm. this, but when it's you saying about your own book, there's mm. that added. For some people, it's fine, and mm. you can... They can do it with that kind of comforts. Yeah. I find um, it hard even to describe my own book. To yeah, yes. so hard. Yes, or write a synopsis. People always want to write a synopsis. Yes. Like, I can't do it. And you think, <laughs> look, if I could describe it in two or three paragraphs, why would I write the book? Yeah, yeah exactly. Have, yeah, mm. yeah. Wouldn't have written the book. It takes a hundred thousand words to describe this book. <laughs> <laughs> and here it is. <laughs> the book itself. It's a, it's a synopsis. <laughs> and so, for the rising of uh, Bella Casey. Mm. How did you get the idea to focus on that character? Mm. Um, I read about her in a kind of an academic book and I just... It's very hard to describe, but there is a moment where you hit on an idea and you think, oh, this is for me. Mm. And it was just a description of her life, which, you know, was a kind of a uh, a riches to rags kind of mm. uh, trope yeah. um, and something about that really you know um, bright promising start um, because she was you know I mean she was born in 1865 
she had a secondary school education, very unusual for someone at that time, and then she went on and she trained as a teacher. Again, for someone from her background, which was kind of um, working-class Protestant, you know, it was just very unusual, Mm. and kind of the world was her oyster. And then, you know, life intervened and Mm. things just went from bad to worse. It's a sort of gloomy biography that really attracted me. But, you know, I just... It's hard to describe that moment where you think, yeah, Yeah, this is it. This is for me. Yeah, Especially with historical fiction, because the history is just riddled with stories. But how do you choose? That's the one I want to go for. Mm. Um, And it's a great period as well, obviously. You have the... Well, I love that period. You know, I think if I were to come back, that's the period. But, of course, I'd probably be living, you know, scrubbing floors or something, (laughs) not writing novels. Um, Because I looked looked up Bella Casey after reading this, Mm. (laughs) and you can't find much on her. I mean, if you put in Bella Casey, everything that comes up is his book, which is great for you, obviously. Yes. (laughs) But so for your actual research to get, I suppose, deep into the story, um, other than that, there was a biography over in an academic. Where where else did you go or what else did you do to dig up the the, the rest of the well, story? Well, I mean, the uh, the interesting thing, I think, for a novelist, a particularly historical novelist, is to find a character about which there is very little. Mm. You know, if I were a historian, um, I'd, I'd have long ago thrown her aside because you know she didn't write she left no letters there is just no trace of her except you know the bare facts of her biography um so i mean sean o'casey wrote six volumes of autobiography (laughs) so you know she appears in that in the early part of that Hmm. so and there's a lot of kind of detail and a lot about his relationship with her um, so that was one view of her. Yeah. And there were a couple of good biographies of O'Casey that included, you know, interesting mm. um, details about her. And I was on a, a fellowship in the New York Public Library. I applied for a fellowship there because they have a lot of O'Casey's papers. And in particular, they had... Um, notebooks of material that he was going to put into his autobiographies oh. concerning Bella, oh. but then didn't. Okay. So I thought, oh, I'm really interested in the yeah. stuff he decided oh. not to put yeah. into the autobiography. And there was a couple of very telling kind of episodes, which I really love to go back in time and ask him, why yeah. did you decide <laughs> to leave these out? Um, so you know, I use those. Uh-huh. I sort of put them back into the record, you know. Right. Um, and is that where you you kind of, I suppose you came up with the the parts that, uh, that Sean O'Casey has written in this, that he's he's really struggling to write about his sister? Yes. And yeah. did you, you kind of, I suppose, invented that because he left it out, you decided he probably struggled to write about her? Yes. I mean, you know, the view of her in the autobiographies is is quite harsh. Right. And pretty unforgiving. You know, she was his eldest and only sister, so she was 15 when he was born. So she was like sort of another mother to him as well. And um, at that stage, the O'Caseys were, you know, they were were working class, 
but they were, you know, respectable working class and um, they had enough money to send her to mm. college. Then the father died, so by the time Sean came along, who was at the other end of the family, um, you know, he was put out to work at 14. Yeah. So he, he was sort of a passionate kind of autodidact, you know, and he really, um, he envied her that chance of education that he didn't get. Um, And then, you know, she got pregnant and married a soldier. And he felt she had wasted all of this cultural, you know, Mm. achievement. Mm. And he was cross (laughs) with her. He was angry. And she had fallen off this pedestal that he put her on. Um, So um, I've now completely forgotten what the question was. Uh. Anyway, I'll grab it on. Um, (laughs) Do. So, um, oh, yes, you were asking about the the pieces in the book which are about him having difficulty writing about her. And um, I, the reason they're in there is that in the autobiography, he killed her off about 10 years before she died. And I thought that was a very telling thing to do. Um, Even though his autobiography, Biographies are are a strange mixture of biography and fiction because they're written in the third person. So he refers to himself in the third person, oh. and he uses fictional devices. I mean, he admits this, you know, that he, you know, puts two characters together like and a he gives words exactly, oh, yeah. and and gives them different names. Like in the autobiographies, she's Ella, not Bella, oh. and you know he changes some of the family names. He changes and others he doesn't. It's kind of hard to work out the logic of it. Yeah. Um, but just even so, even though you know, like these, this is a fictionalized autobiography, I suppose you could say, or an autobiography using fictional um, techniques. I thought that was. Very, very telling. And yeah. I thought, why why did he do that? And I think partly was that her, you know, she her husband died and she was fairly destitute with five kids and she was in the tenements and, um, you know, it's kind of my contention in the book that, you know, O'Casey himself never lived in a tenement, but she did. Right. And that, like, it was sort of partly her life he was drawing on for those uh, experiences okay. in yeah. the plays. Um, so I just thought it was that was the most interesting thing about it that he he killed her off on the page. Yeah, that was. And initially, I didn't want him in the book at all because I thought I was I was kind of cross with him for doing <laughs> that, you know. But uh, and originally the book was supposed to be in the first person, and it was her voice from beyond the grave and speaking okay. to Sean O'Casey mm. directly and giving out to him, you know, (laughs) the way she's treated on the page. But I realised that most people wouldn't have read the autobiographies, wouldn't know much about Sean O'Casey anyway, or his personal circumstances. They might have heard of the Dublin trilogy, but otherwise, you know, he's he's a writer that's kind of neglected in that way, I mean, in the sense of... We know a great deal more about Joyce yeah. or Yeats, for example, yeah. Yeah. or yeah. Beckett. Um, so in the end, reluctantly, I had to put him in. Yeah. And um, I suppose I was trying to deal with in those sections where he's trying to write about her. Um, I suppose I was trying to um, understand why he made those decisions. Yeah. Um, 
and I actually became more, um, you know, kindly towards him as the book yeah. went on. I mean, I started off thinking he's not going to be, he's had his say, he's not <laughs> going to be in this book. But then, you know, I felt actually the drama of the book yeah. is that tension between yeah. them, you know, how she's depicted, you know, why she's depicted in this way, and that instead of having that outside the frame of the book, that it actually had to be made manifest within the book, yeah. you know? It really works, like, because when the bits where it comes that he's writing, you are kind of sympathetic uh, to him when mm. he's struggling mm. to write about it. It yes. makes a lot of sense. And definitely by the end when she's so stubborn, yes. you know, it's like, yes. yeah, it makes sense, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, also, I think that uh, I kind of distrusted my dislike of him I felt yeah. actually I was being too partisan to yeah. her you know and in a way fiction can't afford to be like that that it's taking a stand on something yeah. I thought you know yeah. no he has to be in there and this is not just a black and white thing and mm. it's a family and it's siblings you know there are a whole load of different yeah, everything's incredibly grey area exactly everything has two sides yeah. yes yeah at least two yeah, sides yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because I, I was thinking about that earlier when we were talking about Scout Finch in, mm. in uh, her older voice versus her young voice, mm. and that's one of the, the most fascinating things of, of the rising of Bella Casey for me is, is Bella Casey's voice obviously starts as a young person, mm. and it's almost a totally different voice by the end. Yeah, um, but it's obviously the same person, uh, and it seems hard to me. I've never written something that's kind of so expansive, um, but how did you find that the, the process of? the same person but old and young and the voice being quite different really uh, was that difficult to write or um, well I suppose because I wrote it first in the first person I had the voice um, which I felt was like very important to mm-hmm. get well obviously in a yeah. first person narrative course, you have yeah. to have to have the Any voice book, really, the voices, yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose also being the the age that I am, you know, I look back at my young self and I think, oh, God, was that me? (laughs) You know, and I think, oh, yes, it was you. But, you know, I can see the recognisable bits, but I can also see what's changed and what's what's changed for me and what changed for her was Mm. the life experience in between. Yeah. Um, And that, you know... I suppose it begs the question, are we the same yeah. people all the way through our lives? Is there a core or do we just, you know, like we slough off our skin every seven <laughs> years? Do we, you know, yeah. do we lose, do yeah. we attach more, cum- accumulate more personality or yeah. do do yeah. we shed it? I, You know, I don't know the answer to that. It seems like a very big question for a podcast. Oh, okay. Are we ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> we change, we Are we really ourselves? <laughs> Can we tackle this right now? Can we get to the end? Why not? Let's go. <laughs> you studied philosophy, didn't you? What's no. the answer? <laughs> it's going to be a 10 hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll come back to that. Yes. Part 9 and 10 later. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, with historical fiction, I, I always, uh, I suppose, imagine that if somebody's writing historical fiction, that if your book is, I don't know, what's that, 70,000 words or so, but you've written like half a million or something words and then whittled mm-hmm. it down to that, is that, yeah. is that the case? Did you write Did you write like her whole kind of biography and then, you know, start taking bits of research from everywhere 
and then whittle it down to this? Uh, did you have loads and well, loads of Well, it was about 120,000 right. originally. So um, quite big. But in fact, most, most of what was in it was, um, you know, kind of Detail. fruits of research. Oh, yeah. Okay. And yeah. usually I write the book first. I write the story first and then I think... Okay, I need to research A, B, C, and D. Mm. Um, partly because I don't like researching much, you know. Really, that's no. interesting. No, I don't. Do you suffer um, through? Uh, yeah. So I think, well, you know, I, I find it fascinating when you hear writers saying, "Oh, you know, the research was so fascinating." And I went off on all of these tangents. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah, I don't like research. Either. <laughs> so homework. No. I find research really boring. I just make it all up and yeah. <laughs> Well, best. yes, and I mean, I think, I mean, sometimes you have this more in historical fiction because there's, you know, there's a demand for it to be historically accurate, mm. and you know, if you're if you're going with the period, that you can't have, you know, of anachronisms course. and all of that. She can't be listening to her iPod. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but. Yeah. For this, because I'd got the fellowship in the library, I couldn't Justify sit down that. in my little office <laughs> in the library and say, well, I always write my book first and then I do the research yeah, because, course, you know, yeah. uh, there was all of these yeah. fabulous, you know, not just the papers in the Berg collection that related to um, Sean O'Casey, but, you know, this extraordinary resource of all sorts of different stuff. So for for this book, I did the research first. And I did find myself going down sort of very strange avenues, you know. Mm. I mean, I read a lot about syphilis and, yeah. um, you know, the the education and training of school teachers in the late 19th century and, um, you know, tenement life and yeah. tenement uh, testimonies. Um, and I did, you know, contrary to what I always say, oh, I hate research, you yeah. know, I did find myself thinking, oh, well, I, yeah, I could do this forever. But yeah. partly that was because I was, so in, I was in New York yeah. and I had a room in the library uh, in this beautiful centre. I was paid an enormous amount of money just to be there and do what I was doing. And, you know, it was so privileged that, you know, you weren't even expected to go downstairs and go into the stacks. You know, someone came, you filled out little yellow <laughs> oh, chits yeah. and someone and came along with a little trolley and Amazing. brought you the books. Although so, I kind of like to go down and, and rifle through some things. Just well, a and Indiana Jones. We got, a, <laughs> we got a tour of the library and they took oh, us okay. down beneath. Oh, nice. And I mean, it's wow. extraordinary. Yeah, there is just miles yeah. of material down there, you know. Thinking about, I suppose, the, the underpart of like the Vatican and all the manuscripts they must have in there. Exactly. Have a look. <laughs> because the, the New York Public Library was built on a reservoir. Okay. So it was a reservoir and then they built on it. So it's very, very deep. You right. know, there's four or five floors wow. down underneath Amazing. the building. Yeah, yeah. And how long were you there? How long was it? I was there for, you know, like September to May. Okay. That's a long period. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. And how long did you spend researching? Like, how many months was actually just Well, research? I mean, I researched kind of the all, the, all the time. And I was researching other things, you know, other ideas that I had for novels that actually haven't been, haven't been written yet. But, um, yeah, I mean, I spent all the time. Then I started 
writing it because uh, one of one of the very few stipulations of the of the fellowship is that you have to do a kind of a presentation at oh, some okay. stage to prove to them that you're actually doing yeah, something, yeah, yeah. you know. And um, so, you know, if you're writing fiction, yeah. there's no point in standing up and saying, well, I've researched yeah, syphilis and I've researched yeah. this <laughs> and that. You know, you have to actually produce the goods. So I did start writing it right. there. But in fact, you know, I mean, I probably wrote maybe ten or 12,000 words. Yeah. And... None of them ended up in the fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Then, the, so that was your first time, I suppose, doing all the research before. Then, mm. when you actually started writing, did you, was it very different then, or was it like so before you you kind of were writing the story and you were, I suppose, just seeing where it went? Mm. Was it a different experience having having did it did it help write the story? Because maybe before you would have been like writing and then oh, would this have happened? I'll check that later. And now with this, you would have had the knowledge. You would have known. Yes. Um, well, I brought back this enormous amount of paper, you yeah. know, um, and you know a great deal of it I didn't use, yeah. you know. I, in fact, the enjoyment was just getting it and make, it making yeah. you feel, well, I know all about that now. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't... I wouldn't do it that way again. No, oh, okay. Um, because I think it took longer, actually, to write okay. than it did to write it first and then say, okay, here's what I need to know. These Make are sure there's no errors. Know. Yeah. It's, I suppose it's a tricky balance as well when you do a lot of research. You can fall in and go, oh, this is really interesting, but mm. knowing what to leave out. Mm. Because, yeah, like sometimes you read things where it's... They tell you the details of the belt buckles that a soldier would have worn, mm. which for a story isn't. Yes. Maybe you need to be able to see it when you're writing it. But Yeah, yeah that's um, the whole iceberg thing, isn't it? The, the bottom part of the iceberg. Yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think I, I think when maybe this is fanciful that, um, that a lot of that stuff that's unsaid and unwritten on the mm. page is actually sort of adding to the kind of psychological texture of the book, even yeah. though it's not there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the temptation is that if you find something really fascinating about, you, you know, bootstraps or yeah. buttons, you think, oh, and look yeah. at this fantastic detail, you know, yeah. and that the detail gets in the way of the story. I mean, I just always sort of apply this thing of, you know, what narrative function does this have? Why yeah. is it there? Is it there because it pleases you yeah. and, and you found it, you mm. know, or, you know, does the reader really need to know that? You've been uh, compared to Hilary Mantle um, by somebody, Eilish McGuffin, wasn't it? Yes, uh, I was very pleased about that. Yeah, Mary Morrissey is the Irish Hilary Mantle. Um, so you, have Good you you? soundbite, Eilish. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's a nice one. Right? Um, but her books, obviously historical as well, um, are huge. You know, they're massive. Mm. So I assume she's obviously done a, a tremendous amount of research, particularly about the, the Cromwell and Henry yes. Days and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I haven't actually read her other books, but I love those two. Yeah. Um, well, paradoxically, I haven't read the historical books, but I've read the other oh, ones. Right. Yeah. You've yeah. read the more contemporary Oh. Yeah, I've read everything up to Wolf, Wolf Hall. Hall. You didn't read Wolf Hall? No, oh, I haven't. So good. I mean, it's there, <laughs> yeah. sitting, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I would need a year off to read this. But you, you don't, know? though. You actually, you, you you actually fly through it. Really? It's, really? It's, so you can't put it down. Mm. Well, that's how odd I felt, anyway. Mm. I agree. I mean, interestingly, her first book that she wrote was about the French Revolution. Yes. Which she was crazy about, but no mm. one would publish it. Mm. So it was like three, but she wrote three other books afterwards. Mm. And it was like, that was always her baby. I want to publish this French Revolution book. 
he's a greater safety, which is really good as well. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, because uh, there's a third one, I think, coming as well. Isn't yes, there? yeah. Um, there's one due. But yeah, read them, they're great. Um, so, okay, so maybe you can't answer my question about uh, <laughs> how much of her research went in. <laughs> but with Irish historical fiction, it rarely goes before. There's a lot, you know, in the early 20th, maybe the 19th, but you never really see anything set like during the, I don't know, the Cromwellian invasion or. Yeah. It feels like. Well, sort of not now, but, you know, someone like Walter Mackin, who yeah. wrote all about Cromwell and. Yeah. Which I read. I mean, I read those as a, as a kid. Um, but I think now people don't. It's almost seen like if somebody wrote a book set. I remember hearing John Banville say that he wanted to write something about, like reading that, I wanted to write something set and Strongbow and Dermot McMurrow, yes. which I'd love to read. Yeah. But no one really write, you know, no one yes. really touches that yeah. period of history. A friend, do you know Dan Jean, he started writing something about that. Oh, you yes. Know, you know, yes. yeah, of course, yeah. he was in yeah. my class in yeah. Um Yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Hopefully he does that. But he, <laughs> he, he wasn't he doing sort of a, a kind of a, a modern take on those? Yeah, um, I think it was a collection of short stories, wasn't yes. it? And each of them had aspects of that in yes. a modern, yeah. It was kind of like yeah. subtext. They were wonderful. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah. He was excellent. Um, he's in New York now. I yeah, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, let, let's go back to the teaching, and well, not back to that. Yeah. So you were obviously uh, a tutor of mine in UCD. Yes. Um, Guilty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's partially your fault. All of this. <laughs> now look at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now you're down in Cork. Yes. Uh, on the MA program. Yeah. Um, do you, do you have a, like a preference between teaching and writing? Is it, do you prefer writing, or is there a difference writing when you're also teaching? Or like how much you can write, how much time you can put into it, or or were you always teaching at the same time? Um, no, I've been teaching for about I've been teaching since about two thousand. Okay. And um, up to then, I was working as a journalist, hmm. latterly with the Irish Times. And um, I I got offered quite a few sort of teaching gigs, you know, like summer Irish uh, um, American programs with summer programs in Ireland, and um, and then I, and I taught um, a couple of classes. The University of Arkansas had a summer program in Galway, and I did a few sessions on that. And then they asked me, would I come and cover for somebody for a term in Arkansas? And I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. You know? <laughs> uh, but I couldn't do it because I already had a job, you know. Mm. And um, But it, it got me thinking that at that time I was job sharing in the Irish Times, so I was working, I was only working a couple of days a week. And I thought, well, you know, maybe... Closer um, than Arkansas, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was also that thing of that... Um, that the writing was kind of coming centre stage in my life and I felt I was now turning down opportunities mm. that, you know, I was kind of interested in. So um, nothing, you know, nothing came of that first offer, but then they asked again and I just thought, OK, maybe I'll, I'll do this. And it was, you know, kind of coming into that Celtic Tiger yeah, yeah. period and I just thought... 
oh, why don't I throw in this lovely pensionable job and <laughs> go off and become a freelance teacher? That's a really good idea. Um, of course you don't regret it. <laughs> Um, there were times <laughs> when I deeply regretted okay. it. Um, when Alan was your student. Yeah. <laughs> when Alan was your student. <laughs> Her proud student. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, no, it had nothing to do with the experience of the students. It was just that it's a very rackety life. And, yeah. you know, there can be um, some very... There were some very long, droughty periods where there was no work and... Um, Paradoxically, you don't actually work all that much. More. You don't write all that much more. You're just sitting at home thinking, oh, "Crikey, how am I going to pay the mortgage?" <laughs> or you know. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't regret it yeah. because I had all sorts of, you know, it, it kind of opened up my life a bit. I had always, you know, I'd always worked, and you know, I just thought, "Oh, this is nice." It kind mm. of broadens things out, and. I also kind of wanted to see, could I be a freelance person? I had never been mm. a freelance person. I'd always had, you know, the steady job. Yeah. And, you know, it's partly the way I was brought up. That was, like, that was the thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you never get over when you're a freelance. I'm sure all of you know this, that uh, you're inclined to take everything because yeah. you're terrified that you won't be asked <laughs> yeah. ever again, yeah. you know. So um, often you would take on too much and the writing would get lost. Yeah. And I do find it quite hard to combine writing and teaching because I think you're using a lot of the same kind of energy, you know, right. teaching, yeah, yeah, yeah. creative writing. And you're teaching, um, right? yeah, the subject is you're teaching writing too. Yeah. Maybe it would be easier if you were teaching history or yeah. maths. Or maths. maths. Yeah. <laughs> God help a student who might have to teach maths too. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, it's, it is a nice integrated feeling. And I always find with teaching, teaching writing is that it actually really stimulates your imagination because you're getting so many different kinds of writing mm. and ideas. I mean, the thing is to stop yourself stealing student ideas. Yeah. You think, oh, <laughs> God, this is different. great. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And where do you see this? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, so the, 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 the journalism then, uh, two-part question, do you miss that? And uh, well, what kind of... What kind of journalism was it you were actually writing? What were you doing? Well, I started off as a reporter, um, and I did that for a couple of years. Um, you know, I was working in provincial newspapers, which was very good experience because, you know, you reported everything. You know, like mm. I was the woman's editor, but I was also covering the Kerry Sheep Dipping Committee. And, sheep you dipping. know, yes, it's very <laughs> important to get the consistency of the sheep dip right. And one of the big, you know, sort of junkets of the Sheep Dipping Committee um, circuit was that once a year you had a field trip where you went out to check the consistency of the sheep dip to make sure that the sheep weren't being poisoned by having too much chemicals in the dip, you know. So you'd get on your wellies and you'd <laughs> go out and follow the, the committee to check the consistency of the sheep dip. So I don't even you, know what you're talking about. What's sheep dip? She, <laughs> sheep to dip is to, to stop them catching disease. And you dip the whole sheep in you something? Dip, you dip them I in I didn't know that this happened. Did you think there it was a flavour? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sheep dip, anyone? <laughs> 
There's never been any, you know, good sheep dip short stories. <laughs> yeah, you, know. you should write a sheep dip short story. Hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But it was great experience. But, you know, when I decided to write um, kind of seriously, um, I just thought it was going to be too hard to do both, you mm. know, to be covering, you know, the heights of the Sheep Dipping Commission during the day <laughs> and going home and, yeah. you know. Writing the, the fictionalised version of it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I moved into um, subbing, copy editing. Okay. Um, is that where you got your um, your grammar from your your Grammy Nazism yes it is I'm afraid <laughs> I yes. remember you being very annoyed one day with, with our grammar in class. <laughs> and you, you walked us through everything commas full stops uh, quotation marks um, yes I am a grammar Nazi I yeah. admit it you it's, know. it's the way to be probably um, so I mean I had actually always been interested in that side of journalism because I remember I went to Rathmines that was where you, you did journalism in my days and you did an interview and at one stage, they said, well, you know, what? where do you see yourself going in journalism? What area of journalism would you like to be in? And I said, I'd actually like to be an editor, to be a sub-editor, copy editor. And there was this kind of stunned silence, and they said, really? <laughs> no one's ever said that. They said, you know, people don't have an ambition to be. They end up like yeah. that, but they don't start out wanting to be a sub-editor. Of course, none of these people had edited. They were all sort of reporters and feature writers and so it was always in the back of my mind because I mean I really wasn't what you'd call you know I didn't see myself as a natural born reporter I was you know functional and competent but I I didn't really have the kind of the thirst for the you know the, the breakthrough scoop. the scoop or whatever I, I just mm. wasn't built like that mm. whereas I was built to be a grammar Nazi meticulous and, to, and you know and also kind of reshaping things. I really okay. enjoyed that, you know, and sometimes I would go a bit overboard and I remember doing, rewriting a piece about the Trinity Ball by somebody who shall name, remain nameless in the Irish Times and I, you know, I just completely, I took it all apart and put all the bits on the floor and put them together again in a completely unrecognisable way. <laughs> and, I mean, I went home thinking, oh, God, <laughs> there's going to be terrible trouble about this. And... Um, the author came up to me the next day and said, did you sub my story about the Trinity Ball? And I thought, here we go. <laughs> and she said, it was fantastic. You <laughs> made such a great job. I thought, which was really very big of her because, you yeah. know, if someone had done that to my work, I yeah. think I would have been after them with a meat cleaver, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, there is something very rewarding about, you know, getting that raw material. I suppose mm. it's, it's actually it's partly to well, do that's with writing, writing, you know. the writing process, yeah. isn't it, the editing? To help you a little, you know, to be like, all right, you always hear journalists who then became, you know, fiction writers talk mm. about um, just, you know, only including what is necessary and, yes. you know, cutting out the words that it helps them with their editing. Yes, so. yeah. And I think, you know, that's the part of teaching, actually, I quite I like the best is, you know, someone gives you, particularly working on theses, for example, you know, someone gives you something and you, you can... You know, the same way as for me, you can see things in it that the author isn't aware of or, you know, roads not taken or, um, you know, a different emphasis, how a different emphasis could change it. And I think uh, the experience of editing on newspapers kind of sharpened that those 
skills for me and I just find it really rewarding to be able to say to someone, oh, can't you see here? This is where, this is the really interesting thing here, you know. Um, And then you've got to bring in somebody who's going to shoot an assassin maybe or, you know, helpful suggestions like that. No, only joking. (laughs) Serial killer. (laughs) Serial killer, sorry. Um, But, yeah, and that's still the kind of the part of teaching that I like the best is is the one-to-one I mean, the workshop is great and it has a dynamic of its own. Um, but, yeah, I love that one-to-one thing. Yeah. And it's probably closer to the experience as well of a... If you're in a writer, you will work with editors or have a few mm. trusted readers that, you know, yes. whose opinions you respect. Whereas the workshop model is something that, for a lot of people, they only really experience when they study. Yes. You know, yeah. and then you kind of... It's, you know, it's definitely... It, it can work, you know, very well. So what do you folks think of the workshop model? I hate it. <laughs> no. I... Oh, get off the fence. <laughs> <laughs> um, the workshop model where you everybody writes something and then you read it and then everybody gives you feedback. Yeah. yeah. I, I haven't done that in a long time. Um, I think it's all right. Yeah. I think you it's know, that... Why do you hate it? Oh, well, well, I was joking. No, 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 no. You're allowed uh, to hate no, it. No, I, I honestly don't hate it. I've had workshops that have been really helpful. Um... Yeah, you know, it, it wor- if you have people who are good, as long as you have people that are good readers, you know, mm. or at the very least, if they have opinions, they've thought about explaining yeah. why they have those opinions. Yeah, that's mm. important. As mm. opposed to just sometimes you can be at workshops where it's just like, I don't like that. Yeah. Why? Yes. Uh, oh, I just have a feeling. Mm. Or I mm. like that. Why? Mm. Because I have, you know, mm. articulate criticism yeah. in a workshop. Yeah. It's important is, to make sure you know who's telling you, you know, who you're getting criticism from. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I've been in a few, and somebody's awful. <laughs> it's just like it's just pointless. Like so yeah. you just have to kind of ignore it. I think. Yeah. I think it's something that it it's it it can definitely work very well, but I think it suits certain type of people more than others, and it's become the mm. standardised model now for the only way to study creative writing is mm. in a workshop, mm. where there's other people that probably would benefit from a different type of, probably more what you've described, like a tutorial style, mm. where it's one on one or. What do you what do you think of it? Well, I mean, I think it has its pitfalls. Yeah. And I don't think it suits everybody. Does it keep happening when as as you get more and more, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, established? So it's like you know, workshops with like you and John Banville and Joseph <laughs> O'Connor uh, um, sitting no, around. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I come from um, a vintage where. Um, I had only ever been to one workshop okay. before I gave a workshop, you oh, know. Okay. So as a, a beginning writer, I'd never been to a workshop. Mm. And um, and I think I would have found it really difficult because I think most workshops, as you say, most workshops are for people starting out yeah. who are at that stage yeah. that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast where, you know... You, you're barely able to say your name out loud. You <laughs> yeah. know? The idea that you would let loose this like really precious, delicate thing that you can barely, mm. you know, claim authorship of, yeah. and and put it out into the lion's den that can mm. be the workshop experience. I don't know that I'd have had the balls to do that. Really, mm. I think I'd have found it really difficult. And, and it I mightn't think, even have been helpful at that stage. Yeah, that's what I mean a little bit I think it suits certain people 
mm-hmm. it, it can really help them in their riding. And then for other people, they might feel like they have to do it because that's the that's what riders do now is they do workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, but it mightn't actually benefit them. Mm. But I yeah. I mean, the other side of it is that it gives you readers. Yeah. And um, that's one of the problems if you're sitting at home in your little room and you're not telling anybody you're writing, so nobody's reading it. Yeah. If you haven't told anyone, nobody's reading it except you. And so you've no way of knowing. Yeah. What it's like, you know, whether you're communicating anything, which to me, the workshop, it, it does do that, you know have you know you you have an idea in your head and you put it down on paper and you give it to 10 other people you know do they get what you're trying to do yeah Yeah. and like it's not the same as just giving it to a few friends who maybe don't know much about writing or even reading yeah (laughs) you know yeah and unless you're writing for therapy you're hopefully trying to communicate something Mm. and a workshop is you Mm. know very good for that Mm. also i met most of the people i know in writing through a a workshop or two yes in 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 the world of writing in, uh, in dublin you know um uh, so uh, I think we should start off on this up, but I've got one more kind of two-part question for you, okay. um, which is uh, we're always interested in, I suppose, the creativity side of things. So how do you actually do write and where do you do it and how do you get in the zone? And are you working on something? Is there something new coming out soon? Or um, Well, there's a new book of short stories coming out in January. Oh, good. What's that called? Uh, it's called Prosperity Drive. And it's a, a book of linked short stories. Oh, nice! Um, from, you know, all emanating from a fictional street called Prosperity Drive. Oh, okay. okay. And um, I'm working on another novel at the moment, um, which I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> at the moment, whether. Whether it's the novel I should be writing, because I was away in, um, I was away during the summer, and I got this like idea completely out of the blue, and I had that moment where I thought, "Oh, this is, ooh, this is, (laughs) this is very interesting," Um, and I have to do a bit of, I have to do a bit of research on it because it's historical as well. Um, whereas this one that I'm writing is not historical. Well, it's not historical as far as I'm concerned, right. but it's it's set in the 2000s, but it also has a kind of a thing back in the 80s. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm writing that, but not sure whether that's okay. Will actually become a novel, and I'm doing a bit of research on the new idea that came. The new out of exciting left field. one. The new exciting <laughs> yeah, one. Okay. You know, I mean, it's like you know, having a husband at home and a a lover on the horizon. <laughs> you know, guess what looks more attractive at the moment? You know? <laughs> and when you're doing that kind of thing, do you say, kind of pitch it to your agent or tell your agent or whatever who, what you're writing about or your publisher, or do you just go and do it? No, I just go and do it. Okay. Um, because you know, at the very early stage it's like it's so nebulous yeah you know like it's a one sentence idea and you think you know i have no idea is there enough in this or is this maybe this is just a short story or something you know they could say it's just a tiny little thing that like in reply that could throw you off completely exactly yeah yeah. Yeah. so i mean my experience uh of publishers i mean i've never had it like a two book deal or anything like that um never got an advance before i wrote the book Mm. you know i write the book I send it to them and they give you an advance on publication, but not like before you've actually yeah, written yeah, yeah. it. Um, 
So, like, I'm very wary of talking about things that I haven't yet written or sharing even at a very early stage. Um, Like a first draft, I wouldn't show a first draft to anybody because it's always so... Yeah. Shitty. No, yeah, it's yeah. so bad, you know. The first draft and of everything is shit. Yeah. It's my favourite and quote. Anyway. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. It's so good. Oh, really? Did yeah. he say yeah. that? Yeah. Oh. Well, I've, great. I'll be able to say, as Ernest Hemingway yeah. said. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I wouldn't feel happy showing that to yeah. no, I'm the anybody. Same. I have to rewrite yeah. everything, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, really, like the first draft for me is just a cough. A, Exactly, yeah. or a vomit or something. You know, but it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's all out on the page. Yeah, anyway, even it's, when you do get to like a third draft and you're comfortable to show someone, yeah. even still, it's not. Yeah. You're ready. <laughs> you, you read like the third draft or something of mine, and, and then you had like reams of feedback, and it's like, okay, yeah. and then there's another yeah. seven drafts in this. <laughs> and you see, that yeah, goes back to the workshop on. that, you know, yeah. what you're asking students to do is to, is to, like, they're mostly writing and immediately presenting that stuff to, to mm. workshop. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, which no. is something yeah. a professional, most professionals would not do, yeah. is bring in a something. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 Um, the actual discipline of writing as well, just to, to ask about that, like, mm. do you find that you'd have to, like, when, if you're writing, would you um, physically say, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to write from, you know, 10 to 4, do you just kind of do it whenever, you, you know, you feel inspired, or would you have to actually say, okay, I need to get this done? So, like, like, like you're saying, Lecturing, obviously, yeah. and, and teaching, you know, okay, I'm going to have to be in the, the lecture theatre from mm. half nine to four. Mm. But when you had, say, your office in New York, mm. would you find that you're kind of, you know, you might go in and do a really productive two hours and then say, right, I'm done for the day and I'm going to go? Or would you say, mm. right, I'm going to stay, sit here from nine to six and get X amount done? Well, actually, in New York, I mean, it was such a pleasure to be there, you know, I would stay there all day. Yeah. I mean, you know, I considered it like kind of like a job, you know, I turned in every day and, you know, I might necessarily work every day. I might be reading or whatever, you know. Um, but like at home in my real life, um, it depends, I think, on what stage you're at in a project. Like at the moment, I'm writing the, you know, the husband-like novel um, where, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing a... F- a, fir- a first draft, obviously. So I'm just, I just usually say, okay, I'm going to do X number of words per day, you okay. know, and that might take, might take an hour, it might take three hours, and you know, when I'm done, I'm done. Oh, so you do it by words? You'd say literally, yeah. I'm going to write 500 words or 1,000 yeah. words, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Right, okay. And um, I mean, I don't know. That's probably a hangover from um, journalism. From journalism. Right. Um, and as well as that, because I started as a short story writer and my first book was a book of short stories and I wrote them for years before I attempted a novel and I hadn't actually, you know, it was the publishers who said, well, you know, and now and now your novel, you know, yeah. I thought, oh, right, OK. <laughs> and, I mean, I was terrified of the novel because I was so used to doing the other thing, compressing sure. everything, everything, you know, getting rid of all the extraneous stuff and now I thought I have to keep going for 250 pages on something you know so um i thought the only way to do it was to um divide it up into you know a thousand words a day Mm. that means it'll take me x number of months to write Mm. a first draft and i uh, that way i'll know is there enough in it to keep me going you know and 
you know the way you start you have a kind of a you you start a practice of writing and then it becomes a like a superstition that you think oh I've always done it this way so I have to keep on doing it this way so that's what I do I write a first draft then then it's it's you know you can't then you're writing a second and a third draft you can't say well I'll do a thousand words a day yeah. because it's a different kind of process then you're you're sifting through it and you're editing and you're thinking oh god this is awful that'll all have mm-hmm. to go um, whereas when I'm writing a first draft if there are like huge inconsistencies I just put a note in the margin saying you kill this person off in chapter three fix it when you go back yeah. you know and I keep going you know Um, so like it is a different process depending on what stage of the novel you're at with with short stories are easier because you can fit them in to you know um, Mm. short spaces of time Mm. you know bursts of time and also because you can see an end you know you know it might take me maybe it might take me a month to write a short story but like you know I think Oh, you know, a couple of drafts of this, and yeah. you know, I'll have yeah. something finished. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, whereas with a novel, you you know, it's you're going down the mines, and you don't know how long it's you. It is before you'll see daylight. Um, with teaching, you know, like it depends on how much teaching you're doing. Um, when I was working as a journalist, I worked at night time. I like my job was a night night work. And um, I used to work during the day, every day, before I went to work. Like, I might start at three in the afternoon. So I uh, I still have that kind of rhythm. I, You know, I yeah. can't function in the morning. You know, to me, a, yeah. a writing day starts in the afternoon. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if it was going well, I'd keep going. You know, I'd yeah. keep going till midnight or whatever. Um but uh, with teaching, which is kind of spotty, you have a class here and then you have like a consultation mm. there, you have a meeting and you've admin and, you know, it, it's very choppy, you know. Yeah. So I try to concentrate teaching in certain days and then the days that I don't have teaching or admin work to do, I stay at home because, you know, you go yeah. in, you go into college, yeah. you know, you will get drawn up into work so you know I might be teaching Mondays Tuesdays and Thursdays and then Wednesdays I won't go in Mm. and then I might work all day Uh, so it's a matter of fitting it into your life I'm sure you all had that experience of you know how to work around it and you know you set up a routine and it works for a while and then your work circumstances change and you think I have to yeah. Have to do it some other way now. Yeah. 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 But I think for particularly for a novel it's really important to kind of stay in touch with it because you lose the kind of the world of the novel if you don't visit it. Yeah, you lose the enough. voice and the yeah, characters. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, I look forward to uh reading Prosperity Drive. Yeah. And uh thanks very much for coming on to the Headstuff Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. episode 12 of the Headstuff podcast with Mary Morrissey I uh, really hope you enjoyed that if you did you can go onto iTunes and rate us and subscribe that'd be great and leave a comment if you can because iTunes love all that stuff um, Ferdia if they're, if they're going to rate us out of 5 how many stars should they give us? Um, 
Five. Five. Okay, you've no, heard it here, five. folks. Five stars. And lots of comments as well. <laughs> so do do all that. Um, you can also follow us on, on SoundCloud, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and all those things. Um, if you would like to support the Headstuff podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash headstuff. And uh, there's all sorts of rewards there if you want to do that. And we'd like that. We'd like that, wouldn't we? We'd, we'd like that. Yeah, we would like that I'm very sure much. you won't see a penny of it, but... Uh, <laughs> I want 10%. We're partners now. <laughs> if you move back to Ireland, we can talk. Um, so uh, I'd like to thank Ferdia Lennon, uh, who was the, the co-host today. Oh, no, thank you for asking me. I had a uh, great time. Connor Wilkins, who did the sound from Wilkins Sound Systems. Um, if you have any, any sounding needs, go, don't go to the website. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. When's the website coming, Connor? Uh, actually, pretty soon. Is it? Yeah, great. Oh, well, actually... In the process. Wilkinsoundsystems.com. You heard it here first, folks. There yep. you go. Um, so look that up. You'll find it on Facebook anyway. Um, so thanks, Connor. And uh, thanks, of course, to Mary Morrissey uh, for being a wonderful guest and for all the, the nice advice and all, all, all the rest of it. Uh, the theme tune was by Video Blue. And uh, we'll be back next week or the week after with some more exciting episodes. Thank you very much.